and welcome to the final episode in this series of Your Own Personal Beatles, a podcast about the Beatles with me, Jack Pelling. And me, Robin Allender. Hello, how are you doing? Yeah, good. Yeah, you alright? Yeah, strange week. Mm. It feels quite disconcerting to have had so much good news after a month of trudging through the quagmire of 2020, but... Uh, yeah, yeah. Maybe we're dreaming. Um, yeah, I know. It does feel like that. It's um, it's a good episode actually, and it's funny that we've got an American chap on this week. Uh, but obviously, we recorded it quite a few weeks ago, so before we kind of had potentially some spicy takes about this week's news. But uh... um, yeah, and it's a very different one this week. So we, we're going out with a slightly sort of different feel, and it's uh, we're speaking to Benoit Pierlard, who's a, a fantastic musician and kindly joined us from Brooklyn a couple of months ago to talk about his love of the Beatles. Yeah, and it's a great episode. So a couple of kind of um, pointers before we, before you listen to this episode. So one was Benoit is an ambient musician. Um, he makes a lot of ambient music. So I thought it'd be cool to do a kind of ambient podcast uh, where we've got his music as a bed running under our chat. So that, I think that's really nice. So hopefully it's kind of a soothing one for you. I like a kind of bonus track to the podcasts. Uh, and also, yeah, we did have a few sound issues with this one, recording this one, where Benoit, whose real name is Tom, by the way, Tom Mellick, where Tom's mic was a little bit noisy. So there are some issues with that. But then the ambient bed kind of helps to kind of smooth out those edges, wouldn't you say, Jack? Definitely. I mean, it did make me feel quite sleepy when you sent me the edit, which is no bad thing. That's I mean, the desired that, effect. Yeah, I definitely mean that in a good way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's a, it's a really nice way to end the end the series. As yeah. you say, it's like a nice little little hidden track on the end. And uh, I'm someone who didn't really know his work. Um, I really I found it a really fascinating chat, and I've gone on to uh, listen to quite a lot of his stuff now. And I do again listen to it um, going to bed on your recommendation, which has worked wonders for someone who's a bit an insomniac yeah it's brilliant very soothing stuff i should i just want to shout out as well to dave collingwood my good friend dave who did help with some of the audio issues with this um podcast helped kind of denoising things and helped with the mix so i wanted to shout out to dave and give his uh business a little shout out because dave is one of the few independent symbol makers working in the world uh not symbols like letters and yeah (laughs) things like that but symbols like a drummer might play and yeah he's got uh, yeah so he's a fantastic uh symbol smith very very uh creative and uh, makes brilliant symbols so if you're a drummer interested how does one make a symbol you get a big disc of metal and you hammer it sweet (laughs) yeah Uh, and his website is yeah it's noisy business yeah so his website is collingwoodsymbols.com so if you're a drummer and you're interested in getting some some new symbols then definitely give that a visit so cheers dave yeah or not or if you want just a very fetching but quite heavy hat yeah yeah (laughs) or some bike wheels yeah (laughs) yeah or a fruit bowl yeah he does make Christmas decorations, actually, as well. So. Oh, nice. Well, there we go. Yeah. Tis the season and all that. Mm. Um, as is the final, we'll do as much as we can in our final episode to read out some of your correspondence. I'm really sorry to everyone who um, we didn't get around to reading them out, but, um, you know, we're taking a break after this. So hopefully we'll, we, you know, we'll... we'll um, get round to as many as we can this time and we could save some for if we ever come back hopefully we will but um we'll read out a couple this one i've got here is from matthew butler um who says good evening um slash morning slash whatever time you're listening to this <laughs> um 
Really, uh, really enjoying your show, and it often sounds tracks a post-evening run as I scamper about the Oxfordshire countryside. I assume post-evening run means running around at night. Yeah. Um, or you could be running a bath, I don't know. <laughs> That's true. Um, when I was 20, I worked at East Coat Recording Studios in Notting Hill. Hmm. And uh, we had a sorry, I'm quite a strange mood. <laughs> and we had Kiwi songstress Haley Westenra in one week. I had the pleasure of being the assistant engineer for her sessions, and the producer was none other than your man, Giles Martin. Whoa. He was the most lovely man, and as a Beatles nerd, you couldn't help but occasionally close your eyes and pretend you're in the studio with his dad hmm. somewhere across London. Unfortunately for this podcast, I thought he was probably sick of talking about his dad and the Beatles, and therefore I didn't ask him about such things. I did get some funny stories out of him about Chris Martin, the Spice Girls, and Lemmy. I assume not all at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) If that is all one story, that would be fantastic to hear. Um, But nothing broadcastable, I'm afraid. Um, As I was also a music journalist at the time, I clearly missed the trick in not asking him about the fabs, and particularly as he was embarking on the love soundtrack, but there you go. Mm. In the days after he left, I was involved in helping to produce a radio edit of the song Baby Cakes by Three of a Kind. Oh, I love that song. Possibly the worst number one single of all time. Shut up, that sounds brilliant. (laughs) You're welcome, British public. uh, Kind of UK garagey vibes. I love that song, it's great. Yeah. Um, what what a, a suitable ending, I think, as the great man once said. Toodle Pip, uh, Matthew Butler. Thank That's you very nice. much, Matthew Butler. Uh, talking of butlers, um, it's also the name of my sister, sister-in-law's maiden name. Uh, but uh, we've got another email here from a Marcus Butler, which is a different different butler. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, um, he's, he's emailed us to say, hi, guys, I wanted to thank you for the great podcast it's been a weekly highlight during these troubled times and it's never failed to help take me away from all the issues we're facing, allowing me to reminisce about childhood memories listening to the Beatles. What I really wanted to do in this email was stand up for the frog song, We All Stand Together. I was six when it was released and loved it and I think that's the point. It was a children's song written for a children's film aimed at children and at that it exceeded massively. I remember being transfixed watching the video and being thrilled when I found out it was one of the scruffy-haired Beatles who wrote it. And I actually think it stands up better than the other childlike Beatles songs, such as Maxwell's Silver Hammer, which is basically mm-hmm. a kid's song aimed at adults. Yeah. Who like so that's, murder. Yeah, about, about murder. So keep up the great work, Marcus. Thanks so much for writing. And with, with um, We All Stand Together, have we actually slagged it off, or did a, a guest slag it off? Um, I think multiple guests have slagged it off, apart from Hazel World, who really liked it. But it's actually been re-released this week. Yeah, I, think, um... I, I listened to it this morning and I nearly cried. Oh. <laughs> I got goosebumps. That's I tried nice. to take a photo of the goosebumps it's i think it's really i i don't think i've actually said anything against it because i think it's really quite no i mean i've been really. pretty indifferent about it it's just sort of it's like it's quite a sort of um you know well-worn stick that's used to beat paul mccartney yeah more but it's not like he frivolous was, stuff i mean it's about rupert the bear it's not like he was trying to you know do the disintegration loops or something <laughs> you know <laughs> it's like yeah. um it, well, it is, like, as Marcus says, it's a children's song. Yeah, so, yeah. it's quite a mad thing to take issue with. But, um, yeah, yeah, there we go. We'll stick up for the frog song. Yeah, Thank sure. you very much, Marcus. Pair mm. of butlers. Pair of butlers. Yeah, um, thank you. Who's your, who's your favourite butler? My sister-in-law, Cat Butler. Okay. <laughs> uh, I like Geoffrey from the French, pr- Fresh print, the French Prince of Bel-Air. The fr- French <laughs> Prince of Bel-Air. Um, the spin-off. Yeah. I've also had a tweet from uh, Tom M on Twitter. 
uh, in response to the Josh Widdicombe episode that went out last week. He said, you've probably had it confirmed since the podcast went out, but Van Morrison did fly off at Green Man while the band were playing Gloria. (laughs) So I I didn't misremember it, which is good. I've embellished the story when I tell it that £50 notes were falling out of the helicopter from a big big bag he was holding. So that's great. Thanks for for tweeting me with that, Tom. That's that's nice to be reassured that I didn't just dream that. (laughs) Can I do a bit of guitar stuff or is that really annoying? No, please do. So I was working out Julia the other day, and Julia is really hard because John Lennon had very strong fingers. Yeah. This chord here. I mean, that's very hard. But the thing mm. I noticed about Julia is he does that great change from the, you know, you're in your major chord here, you're in D. And then he goes to that A minor seven, mm-hmm. and it's the exact same chord change in Strawberry Fields, isn't it? Take oh, you down because I'm going to, you know, Julia, Julia. And um, it's just, I just think that's so classically Lennon that 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 chord changes to go out of the home key in that way, and it's like his little wardrobe to Narnia, isn't it? You know what I mean? Yeah, it's this yeah. Kind of way of it's a great change. I was listening to. Um, Funnily enough, Shostakovich's seventh this week. Oh yeah, to... I, I was I was listening to Shostakovich's eighth, so <laughs> one one better. Yeah, it's got some very uh, some very strawberry fieldsy kind of uh, feels to it. At some point, I don't know oh, if cool. Lennon was ever aware of it, but there's definitely that beginning intro yeah. is is there pretty much note for note, wow. which I found very interesting. Cool, love to give that a listen. Yeah. yeah, strawberry fields gets a lot of mention in this podcast. We should say that this is. Probably not the most Beatles-heavy podcast, the interview with Benoit. Mm. It's kind of, we. there's a lot of detours, but we do come back to the Beatles every now and again. But, you know, just... Yeah. Just and the White Album there. quite a lot, which is uh, which is interesting. Seems yeah. to be a very popular one with the producers that we've talked to. Yeah, definitely, yeah. The kind of textural elements of it and the kind of, yeah, sort of magical things we end up talking a lot about the kind of going down the boards of canada route again which have been mentioned before and talking about acts like that as well in this podcast yeah um it's a fantastic one so we won't keep you any longer um so please sit back relax don't get too sleepy maybe lay off the benadryl and Mm. here's benoit pialat So this week we're delighted to have a very special guest, uh, which is Mr. Tom Mellick. Uh, Tom Mellick is a musician, a singer-songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, writer and photographer, best known by his pseudonym Benoit Pialard. And I'm a huge fan of Benoit's music. Um, in fact, I kind of listen to his music a lot uh, while falling asleep. So for me, this is like meeting the sound of falling rain. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but Tom, how are you doing? I'm doing really well, especially after that comparison. Uh, <laughs> That's great. I've gotten you know some kind remarks over the years, but that may, may be one of my new favorites. <laughs> I first met you because I did a tour. I played with um, mm-hmm. musician Luzinda Chua, who plays on the under the name Felix at the time, yes. and you did a couple of gigs supporting us. And um, after that, I kind of went and listened to a lot of your records, and I really got into them. And I loved how they were a mix of kind of very melodic songs uh but kind of filtered through a kind of tape hiss kind of uh 
nostalgic kind of Boards of Canada style aesthetic. And then it kind of, you sort of move towards more ambient sounds and stuff. So yeah, that's kind of, for people who haven't heard you before, I guess that's a good way to describe your music. Would that be fair? Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, I would say so. And uh, I, I'm also flattered by the Boards of Canada comparison. I've got, <laughs> yeah. you know, I obviously can't see this on the podcast, but I've got a, a turquoise hexagon on my arm uh, yeah. in, in honor of them. That's great. Uh, nice. That I've had since I was 18. Cool. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's funny to think back to eight years ago already playing those shows with Felix, um, where I met you and I uh, can't remember who the third person in that group was. But... Neil, um, the drummer, Neil. Yeah. Yes. Uh, awesome. And I was going to say, yeah, she's she's been a friend over the years. She's playing with uh, FKA Twigs, you probably saw. Yeah, I know. It's just cool. amazing, so amazing for her. It's so great to just uh, jump on her Instagram and see like <laughs> she's hanging out with FKA Twigs and things like that. Yeah, and while, cool. I was, while I was in the UK that year, she did some cello on one of my records that turned out really beautifully too. Yeah. She's great. She's also played with Stars of the Lid and mm-hmm. people like that. Um, yeah, I think I think that's how she came into the cranky orbit initially. Yeah, yeah. Are you in uh, Brooklyn then, Tom? At the moment? Yes, I am. Cool. Where whereabouts? Yeah, it's, is it? uh, in the Bushwick neighborhood. Okay, cool. Yeah, I mean, I've been here uh, a year as of last week. So obviously, right. like the first seven months of being here were great. It's been a little different since then. I brought, yeah, I brought right. my quarantine mop top in honor. Of- <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm heading that way as well. Actually. Yeah. But, I don't know, there's a simultaneous thing where it's like, I really enjoy just getting out to ride my bike, and Mm. I'm relatively, I mean, the streets are getting busier and busier now as things get sort of uh, open back up, but the first few months I was able to just like, you know, ride in half as much traffic and um, get out and at least experience some element of of normalcy. I've also saved a lot of money, obviously. Yeah, right. Yeah. Not doing things. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I'd managed to do that and now it's all gone. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get, bring it back to the Beatles. Uh, yes. So what's your, I mean, you're obviously a big Beatles fan and I can kind of hear the Beatles in some of your music in the very melodic stuff, but also in the kind of more experimental end. But what's your kind of first uh, kind of memories of the Beatles, I suppose? Uh, the very first ones were pretty early on, like uh, my, my dad was a fan of theirs, um, particularly of the White Album, and uh, Obla Di, Obla Da was the song he would sing me to sleep with. I know you guys kind of savage that uh, <laughs> in, in recent episodes, and I can understand why it's not, like, it's certainly not peak Beatles exactly, but yeah. it's... Yeah. It's uh, not the sound of falling rain. That's no. <laughs> it's, uh, but that, to me, has a very personal attachment, um, right. and... You know, it's one of those things where I, I knew the melody and all the, the verses and, and the way my dad sung it for such a long time and then heard the recorded version. And I think the few times I heard it um, in later years, uh, I began to notice more and more the level of detail that went into that song, the little kind of, there's an insane number of instruments yeah, that only right. appear for just a few seconds at a time. And I really kind of, uh, I, I enjoyed that That's aspect so of the song. Because when we were talking to May Martin, we were talking about how do you mount a defensive obla di obla da? And so this is you. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah, it's like yeah. a really well-constructed song. It's it's jaunty. I guess I don't consider myself in general a fan of like jaunty, boisterous <laughs> music like that, but it's cute and it's kind of, it's got a certain whimsy. I know you guys have talked about whimsy too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that can be really hard to pull off, especially something that's whimsical and also worthy of multiple lessons, I think. Yeah, right. It's, yeah. it's pretty rare. Because it's very kind of Paul McCartney thing to do that, like Penny Lane has little incidental things coming and going with like the the fireman's bell and things like that and yeah and i, I guess detail. it kind of ties into something that um i associate with the beatles like from early on too with uh 
the first time I heard Sgt. Pepper's and read about how it was reported on two four tracks, I think, or yeah. two, was it two eight tracks? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I can't remember exactly, but just the relatively bare bones uh, tools that they used to create something so that has so much of its own world. Um, and at the time, I think I heard that for the first time, probably it was 13 or so, and I was just beginning to record on a four track of my own. Yeah, and right. thinking about trying trying to like figure out how I could maximize uh, each of those elements. Like I'd have clearly drums and guitar have to be constants throughout whatever I'm recording, but then yeah. I'd use the other two tracks to kind of throw in this instrument or that or like a little vocal thing. And then the fun was in mixing the tape down to a, a secondary deck. I think I had like an Iowa cassette deck, very right. ba very basic thing I bought at Best Buy then, yeah. to, to accept my four track works. And then. It's, <laughs> Just remembering what goes where, and I'd have like you know, have fun writing out maps and that kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So you were bouncing down multiple tracks to cassette, and mm -hmm. yeah. So that so it must have got pretty hissy then. I guess. <laughs> yes, and I mean that that's probably uh, you mentioned the fact that my music is riddled with with tape hiss and kind of analog effects, and that's all comes by naturally. I know there's uh, last time I saw somebody using Ableton, they pointed out that there's a you know tape hiss and like a VHS warble effect that you can yeah. throw in there, but <laughs> everything I get is is authentic at least. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I noticed one of the Logic Pro updates had an, uh, a kind of a chill wave plugin. <laughs> where you can kind of make it sound, I don't know, chill wavy. But yeah, that's so. So from a very early on age, you were kind of drawn to for what would now be called kind of lo-fi, I guess, recording. But because did those actual sounds appeal to you? The actual sounds you were getting as kind of artifacts of that recording, that hiss and that kind of those kind of ways the sounds were processed, or was that just what you were doing with what you had to hand? Um, it's a bit of both. Like I think the first recordings I ever made were when I was probably five or six, not musical right. stuff, but I yeah. had a, a little boombox, a cassette boombox, and uh, I would go with my mom on errands to the supermarket and buy like a, ba a bag of like three store brand cassette tapes that just sounded awful. <laughs> no matter what you did them, I think you know people would buy them to make mixtapes or whatever. But I yeah. used to just walk around in the forest behind my house and crunch on leaves and like hit trees with sticks and like record those sounds and. Uh, really? sometimes record my mom singing in the kitchen and it just like I had this kind of uh, innate need to document in that way so that's so you're basically field recording from five when you yeah I totally I thought I invented that when I was, <laughs> when I was that age was like, that's a, a lot cooler than my uh, juvenilia with my first recording device where I'm pretending to be uh, on capital FM <laughs> okay. and uh, playing loads of well, like really terrible pop records pretending to be Chris Tarrant <laughs> well there's a lot of virtue in that too yeah <laughs> do you still have any of that stuff uh, yeah that stuff I've kept track of pretty well. I think there was a, a long phase where I didn't buy tapes and I was just content to dub over what I had that I yeah. wasn't using anymore. But mm. everything probably from age like 11 to the present I have in a box in the, in the back of the apartment here. Wow. Nice. Have you ever put it into any of your like more recent work? Or is that? Oh yeah, there's definitely some Easter eggs, some, some things in there that I probably wouldn't expect anybody to ever notice, but even mm. some percussive elements, like I'll take, uh, like I mentioned, hitting a tree with a stick or something like that, and that's just like uh, occasionally get the, the itch to go through an old tape and I'll just sample bits and pieces and save them in a bank for other, other usages, background noise. Oh, that's so cool. Whatever, right. so it's like weaving in past and the present. And I, I, I enjoy particularly having a sense of continuity in life. Like I yeah, like, yeah. Uh, I can understand myself better through revisiting those things. The past inside the present. 
the thing that I love about your stuff is that with those artifacts of recording, like tape hits, I, the, the, you know, things like that get called lo-fi. But to me, like I'm a big fan of these albums you did called Stanza, Stanza One and Stanza Two, and um, they're, they, they're, they're far from lo-fi because those sounds are so textural. They're almost kind of orchestral, and you know they're, they're so evocative and nostalgic. And I think, uh, and I suppose this is a way to get it back to the Beatles. But like, mm-hmm. do you get that kind of a f- impression when you listen to the Beatles that sometimes, say, something like Strawberry Fields, which was very sped so much that it became something very artificial sounding in a way, or something where you can kind of hear the tape. Is that kind of something that you? like when you know it, it kind of it's a processing of it isn't it in strawberry fields it kind of sounds like it's a kind of nostalgic song and now we listen to it and we can hear the kind of tape almost warbling and you know with the very yeah. speed and yeah, that sure. now adds this level of nostalgia to it because it kind of sounds old <laughs> yeah i agree I, I, uh yeah i think <laughs> i want to say it was brian you know i can't remember exactly some some similar cultural commentator who talked yeah. about how the things we initially hate about a format are the things we come to love, like right. the, hiss, the hiss of a tape or the skip of a CD, you know, mm. things that initially we find annoying. Yeah, but then later right. on you're like, I'd, I'd give anything to, you know, see a, a VHS tracking control thing right now. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, for sure, that's, that's an element and that kind of, as we get more distant from the actual recording of those things, yeah. uh, it kind of steeps them in a little bit more of a sepia yeah. tone, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, it is. It's, mm. it's Yeah. Yeah, so I'd hate to you to compare it to Instagram filters, but you know, yeah, no. yeah. <laughs> another another thing that like technology just wants to replicate something that's got so much more charm than any yeah right digital yeah. filter could could yeah. convey. Where do you stand on the sort of um, with with that in mind of of treating records like sort of artifacts? How do you feel about the um, re- like modern remixes of the Beatles albums, where they've polished everything up and got rid of all of those artifacts, and um, you know, taken a few liberties with the recordings? Uh, I think there's a market for that. I guess that's the kindest <laughs> thing I could say. Um, I, I'm I'm a bit of a purist. I, I've never been big on like bonus tracks on records. Or uh, there was a comedian who made a joke a long time ago about I think it was uh, maybe just after George Harrison died, and they said like uh, the estate of the Beatles or whoever is releasing a new track next week. It's called Leave Your Number After the Beep. <laughs> just making you know a joke about whatever smidgen of recording they can yeah, find yeah, it's released right. and <laughs> deluxe made into a deluxe edition. Yeah. Um, yeah so I, yeah. I was thinking about that in terms of the Beatles, and I, I, I realized that I've never had much of a tolerance for their, the early you know Love Me Do kind of stuff. I realize mm. it has its place, and plenty of people mm. who love love that stuff to death. But I'm not really much of a singles kind of person. I, mm. I more, much more deeply appreciate their album-oriented work. Uh, yeah. Particularly the White Album and Sgt. Pepper's, but yeah. Um, so, so if you go back to growing up, so what what was your next kind of interest in music? Then, so when, how did, when did you first start playing music as a kind of serious concern? Was that when you were at college or when you were? Uh, well, I was really fortunate to have a piano teacher in my orbit. My mom's best friend, mm-hmm. uh, Debbie Beechnaw, is her name. I think she's recently retired from piano teaching. Right. Uh, they've known each other since the late '60s, and yeah. um, just kind of naturally worked out that I was a student of hers, starting when I was about five or six. Okay. Uh, I took piano until I was 13, 
I enjoyed it till I was about 10 and then I got into guitar and drums and kind of shifted that direction. Yeah. And my dad's always been really supportive. Like he, if I was just like, Hey, I don't want to take bass guitar lessons, but I really want a bass guitar. He's like, oh, let's go buy you one. <laughs> you know, we weren't of a terrible, like upper middle class or anything. We were just like very, very average, very comfortable. I'm happy to say that it was just like, that's the sort of thing. I think he saw that there was passion there and wanted to support it. Yeah. And so that's cool. a pretty big deal that I realize yeah. not a lot of people have. Yeah, that's true. Where yeah. did you grow up? Uh, Mid-Michigan, East Lansing, Michigan. Oh, okay, cool. So was there, is there a sort of prevailing music scene there as you were going into your teens or whatever? What was mm. listening to? I don't know. The only band I was in, in in high school, or like the most serious one, was a very much a progressive rock band that I played drums for. Uh, oh, nice. <laughs> called Sexual Pantalones. Uh, I, didn't come up with, I didn't come up with that name, but we uh, we covered some pretty, like, Sexual, Pretty, what, sorry. Sexual pantalones. Yeah. What's I that? I, 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 it was essentially like a word salad result oh, okay. of, of, of <laughs> right. uh, some, you know, chopping up words and oh, reassembling them. Um, <laughs> we generally went by ass pants, or at least that's because I, was, because I was a very shy and embar- easily embarrassed teenager. I would yeah. refer to us as ass pants. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, we covered, we, we covered like long distance run around and some like weird very complicated Zappa stuff which I didn't didn't genuinely I enjoyed playing it but there's no way you would ever catch me listening to very much Frank Zappa yeah right Um, (laughs) and some like Gentle Giant that sort of thing Uh, okay so kind of proggy and where were the how were the Beatles as a teenager where what kind of position did the Beatles have in your life then you you really into the White Album and yeah, uh, well, I, I, I was kind of romanticized the White Album because my dad would tell me about uh, getting back from Vietnam. He served a, a couple of tours there as a paratrooper and wow. uh, mm-hmm. kind of found his peace when he got back to Indiana, where he lived at the time, and became a like a sign painter, painting things mm-hmm. by hand. He's got beautiful handwriting, mm-hmm. always has, and so he's like, I think that was a natural kind of job for him for a while, and he talked about just like sitting in his sign painting studio and listening to the White Album over and over again. He said he hates Side 3 for some reason. I guess it's just too loud. But Oh, really? Uh, <laughs> that's the one with Helter Skelter. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. um, but other than that, he, he loves the rest of it. And he used to uh, bop around coffee shops playing Rocky Raccoon and like a few Dylan songs and that kind of thing. Oh, cool. Yeah. That's great. So you kind of had that place in your life because of what your dad had told you about it and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and my I think my mom was more into the uh, like the early single stuff. You know, she was like fourteen when the Ed Sullivan performance happened, so it was okay. very yeah. very much uh, the right era, the right era for her. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I appreciate those songs too. I was going to say uh, I, I think the redeeming or the redemption of those songs for me is in the way that they've been covered by some other people. Like, I think Del Shannon did a better version of some of those earlier songs than the Beatles did. Like, uh, Run For Your Life is obviously a problematic song, but when Del Shannon sings it, he's got that kind of just, like, a little bit of grit in his voice, and he sounds Mm -hmm. kind of slightly crazy, so he pulls it off a little better. Uh, Nancy Sinatra did a great version of that song, too, Uh, obviously saying uh, Little little Boy instead of Little Girl girl in the lyrics. Yeah, that's cool. Because that is one of those. Because Lennon, we, we always seem to talk about this song. But, well, I suppose for obvious reasons. But like, um, Lennon always did kind of claim it was a kind of character and stuff. But with Lennon's stuff, it's always so auto. Lennon tends to be so autobiographical in the way he writes. It's hard to kind of think of him as adopting that character for some yeah. reason. Yeah, it's about a character, but the character is him. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like some of those early songs, like they work really well as covers because they're they seem too sort of youthful and cheruby to be sort of singing them properly as mm. well. Like that Al Green version of uh, "I Want to Hold Your Hand" just makes the whole it makes it gives it a bit more sort of 
gravitas and mm -hmm. makes it like just feel a lot less frivolous and you know disposable teeny boppy sort it, it of thing. It makes it a little bit sexy as well. Do you think? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, he does that to everything. I think he actually might want to do more than just, just hold hands. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's like you know, it's no shortage of uh, euphemistic word usage in, in music. Yeah. Sugar, yeah. sugar in my bowl is obviously not about sugar in a bowl. Yeah. Wait, what's that about? No, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> When did you start kind of uh, releasing music under your under the Benoit name, and where did but the Benoit PLR name come from? Uh, that literally came from a dream. I've generally always kept a like a notepad next to my bed, and there was a yeah. point when I was in college, uh, in like two thousand three, where I was taking at least three or four French classes at the same time, and I think I, you know, the old adage is that you, if you dream in the language you're learning, you've You've mastered it. I don't think that's really true, but um, <laughs> it, there was at least to the point where I encountered this name in a dream and woke up and wrote it down and okay, didn't cool. even remember it when I opened opened up my yeah. notebook the next day. Um, but at that point, a friend of mine had asked me for a couple of tracks for a compilation uh, on a label called Mood Gadget that right. I think still exists. But um, up to that point, I hadn't used a name of any kind. I'd really I put together like editions of 50 CDs of various things for yeah. friends and family before that, but uh, never attached a name to it. And at yeah. that point, I, I was just like, no, fuck it, I might as well just put this weird fake French name on yeah. the end of that. And it's kind of kind of stuck, because I sent a demo the following year to Cranky, the label I mentioned earlier, yeah. um, who then you know, responded positively and asked me for some more songs, and that's how the, I kind of got that ball rolling. Ended that's up with my great. first record when I was 21, I finished it. Yeah. Um, and at that point, kind of was so honored and flattered to be on a label that I'd listened to for so long and in such good company that it was just like, that's probably the only thing I ever do. Might as well quit, quit music, figure out what I actually want to do. I was interested in, you know, chemistry and a few other things. And right. Figured I'd trace one of those paths. But once that actually went reasonably well and I got some royalty kickback from it and was able to, uh, like I moved to Portland, Oregon the following year. Yeah. And was able to go without a job for about a year after that. And just you know, tool around on my bike, uh, spend time with friends, and, and do a lot of recording. I, I kind of set everything else aside for that. Mm. It's been you know, I've gotten to tour, go to you know, places, and meeting folks like yourself. Yeah, yeah. Mm. It's been just very unexpected. I still I, I feel uh, really good about the fact that I can have a very normal life, record whenever I want on my own terms, and. I've worked in restaurants over the years, primarily as secondary support, like a lot of musicians. And yeah, you're right. That's that's been fine. It's a, it's a nice way to shift gears, and you know, you spend enough time at a at a restaurant job, kind of go into autopilot and daydream through it anyway. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And are you are you full time music now? Then is that kind of how's, how's kind lockdown of, affected you? With yeah, that? that's that's by necessity right now. I've been yeah. primarily throwing myself into more recording and uh, trying to be resourceful. You know, band band camp are doing there once a month uh, days where they, they waive their 10 to 15% fee for, for artists and yeah. that site, that platform has been a huge blessing to me because I've got a subscriber function on there too yeah. with a few people that follow me and, um, Yeah, that's awesome Yeah, I mean it's been so interesting seeing how, you know Bandcamp versus Spotify has played out yeah, no comparison. Lockdown. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> I mean, how do you feel because you have your stuff on Spotify as well don't you, but like, how's that? True, yeah, I, I, I call it the the devil's bargain. It's, it's like you you miss out on 
a huge listening audience. If you refuse to put things on there, it's, yeah, right. It's a it's a tough call, and I yeah. you know I, I respect people who go the extra mile, like hear something on Spotify, search out the artist, and then give throw them a few dollars for a mm. you know a pay what you want album or something like that. Yeah, yeah. That's a huge deal because I think. Uh, I don't keep very close track of my Spotify metrics. I have a few friends who who do with their own, but yeah. um, I, I know that the the payout is definitely not any, anywhere equivalent. I think I, I maybe no. get like a few hundred dollars every three months for you know several hundred thousand plays. That's crazy. Really? Yeah. That's, I mean, it must be completely unsustainable. Like, I don't really. Surely that the Bandcamp model makes so much more sense mm-hmm. or do you think that it'll just become um like two different kind of ways to consume your music you it's one of those things where we're just trapped in the model aren't we we're trapped in so I think yeah. at this point yeah there's there has to be some some kind of upheaval to really change the way things are going i have a, yeah. I have a friend who theorizes that spotify has been working to basically become the only record label in the world so right they, yeah. they, they kind yeah. of chew up smaller labels i think offer them Deals. I don't know enough about it to say, but he, he yeah. kind of went on a tirade about how like they're they're essentially gunning to be the only music resource, and I'm glad yeah. there's there's an entity like Bandcamp out there to totally. at least treat people fairly, offer direct access, and that kind of thing. Did you see that thing about kind of Spotify? Kind of, they might even algorithmically create their own music. So oh, that that, that definitely happens. <laughs> I have uh, I have friends who claim that. Uh, their own music or like music by people they know has has been removed from a playlist and replaced by like some just non-existent name it's just like almost like a, a computer generated wow. artist name with with you know a, a vaguely ethereal sounding track yeah, title right. and it's essentially <laughs> the same thing with maybe like a slight inversion on one chord or something like yeah that. it's very weird that's so odd because there's definitely like having played with jan uh jan tierson there's mm-hmm. a lot of very jan like music on like relaxing mm. piano playlists and you go to the artists and they don't exist you google them and the only mm. way you can you know the only hit is the spotify profile <laughs> they like don't yes. exist kind of kind of creepy I've, yeah i'm pretty fascinated by by ai there's a like yeah, a few right. instagram accounts i follow that have like ai generated poetry or like oh, okay yeah that mm. kind of thing that's always kind i used of to get i used to collect all the spam i received i got some great spam <laughs> at one period one of the subject titles was Bemused Shoe. <laughs> That's a good band name. I miss those days. No, yeah, now, I, yeah. now I just get uh, like short paragraphs from uh, very suspicious women asking me to come up with them, I think is the phrase that keeps like, <laughs> look, look at my beautiful new body kind of thing. Yeah, it's just, yeah. It's like, who's this for? The people who actually click through <laughs> when the name, the recipient name, or whatever, the sender's name is Kathy, but the email address is just this like. String. 96 character yeah. uh, <laughs> alphanumeric string yeah. we've talked about this with a few guests like, how do you think John Lennon like if he was alive now how would you think he would interact with the the world we're in now how, what do you think his character would be like and how do you think do you think he would have had a good 80s <laughs> <laughs> uh that's that's tough to say I, I really like i have to admit i have very little familiarity with most solo material like post right. 75 maybe i really yeah, like right. I, I, the most 
uh, I've heard by any single like solo Beatles, um, solo Beatle was George Harrison stuff. Like I really love uh, all things must pass. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, mm. Few of, of, of his things, but as far as Lennon, like you know, nobody wants him to have died, obviously. But yeah. um, I, that's that's a fair question, and I, I I think he might have gone more in the direction of like arena filling balladry based on <laughs> yeah. what, yeah. I, what I know of his later stuff. But that's um, so insane to think of that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he he seemed to both lean in and curl away from fame and. How that might have might have played out. He also could have just gone totally nuts. I mean, it's weird, isn't it? Like, I think, yeah, he could have gone nuts. It's odd that like Paul become a total reckless. Yeah, Mm. yeah, he could have done a Salinger or. Well, Mm. I I kind of really admire John Deacon, the bass player from Queen, because he has just said no to everything. He doesn't. Mm. He's Mm. not part of any reunion. He doesn't comment on any Queen release, and like, I think that's a kind of interesting. Why should we expect our, you know, pop stars or rock stars from the past to have any say in the modern world? You know, yeah, I've wondered that about Kurt Cobain myself uh, yeah, as well because right. there were indications based on his last few interviews that he was going to go in like a more acoustic direction. Yeah. I don't know if that had to do with the unplugged performance, but yeah, he talked yeah. about mm. just wanting to strip things down, and I've I've always wondered what that would sound like because um, I. I know you said Robin that Nirvana was one of your first favorite bands, and that's yes, very much yeah. the same for me. I was oh, right, deeply, yeah. deeply into them from yeah. age like eight to twelve, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I feel like a lot of where Kurt Cobain was massively influenced by the Beatles. Obviously, I feel yeah. like my a lot of my sense of song construction and maybe a sense of taking risks uh, and also vocal harmonies that he did were mm. pretty massively uh, important to me. Yeah, right. And yeah, he was so. Um, that's the amazing thing with Kurt Cobain, isn't it? That kind of... You can really hear the Beatles' influence. I don't know, songs like Drain You or obviously About about Girl or something. But there's this absolute... I mean, he, he gets compared to Lennon a lot in terms of the, like double-tracking and stuff, but there's mm-hmm. a real McCartney vibe to, to Kurt Cobain, I think. He, he could just find these enormous melodies in just over a few really simple chords. and There's mm-hmm. something of that real kind of, uh, you know, McCartney's kind of real kind of genius is so so unschooled, but these melodies just seem to come to him. And I think there's that with Kurt Cobain, isn't there? It's just so kind of incredible the way he could come up with those tunes. Yeah, yeah there's uh, like one, one thing I, I don't generally encourage or like listen to um, instrumental covers of popular stuff like I know yeah. there's been a, a lot of Radiohead stuff has been made into, into, into either piano or like oh, yeah, orchestral yeah. work and that kind of thing but yeah. Yeah, there yeah. was I think it was in the big short that movie from a few years ago there was oh, a, yeah. a, like a string version of Lithium and it really just like I had heard that song hundreds of times Yeah, but I, I feel like I heard it for the first time and with yeah, that so version cool. it was so beautiful and it highlighted the vocal melody so well yeah, yeah. it's just such an unimpeachable uh, song I think, yeah definitely like. Oh wow, I need to check that out. That's great. Mm. <laughs> when you were sort of recording and starting recording, your stuff was kind of more melodic and then you've kind of become more ambient. Is that fair to say as your stuff has progressed? Have you mm. always had that kind of... So what's kind of drawn you to ambient music? Uh... It, it has felt like a pretty natural transition. I think I've like, you know, even mixed in with the more poppy kind of songs that I wrote more frequently in the past, uh, I would 
really enjoy throwing in you know an interlude of one or two minutes of something completely different, and that's something mm -hmm. that I picked up from you know my buddy Valentine and Boards of Canada and a lot yeah. of other formative things. Yeah. And like I said, I, I tend to appreciate album experiences more than singles experiences. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. The idea of constructing a whole world or like some kind of arc, whether it's a narrative or a concept or not, I've never yeah. really done a concept record per se, but <laughs> at least having things that flow into each other and like giving a sense of maybe. You know, you're going through a forest, and there are parts that are really dense, and parts that kind of open up to the sunshine. That sort of thing. Um, but what was the question? I lost my train of thought. <laughs> um, oh, the transition into more more strictly ambient stuff. Yeah, it's um, I've you know there are different parts of my brain that work really mathematically, and some that work more like texturally. Um, I forget which side does which, but. Yeah. <laughs> um, song songwriting has always been very mathematical to me. I have I realized yeah. at a certain point I have like four or five different ways of writing a song, and they all like one of those would generally fit into whatever I was doing. Right. Way that that uh, either there was or wasn't a chorus. I've always been kind of allergic to repeating the same lyrics. So even if I had like a chorus melody, the lyrics would always be different. Oh, that's cool. Um, right. Yeah. Just because I generally find that kind of boring, like songs yeah. where they say the main phrase over and over again. Yeah, I right. Was watching. Uh, cable television the other week uh, on the MTV Classic Channel, yeah. which uh, now the, the band Bush uh, from oh, Ross yeah. is, is on MTV well, Classic, yeah. but they Swallowed. played, uh, there's that song where he says mm. swallowed about a thousand times, and yes. the video that I saw was for Glycerine, which was okay. always like immediate skip when I was listening to that album when I was yeah. a kid, mm. um, but he similarly says Glycerine. 90 times towards the end right. just like alright fade it out yeah. <laughs> we're, they were, we're quite good, big we're in the US Bush weren't they yeah. they were yeah for sure they weren't very big here <clears throat> yeah. well, well, but I mean, they were they, no they were British aren't they they're from Shepherd's yeah, Bush yeah they're from so. Shepherd's Bush yeah. 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 yeah everything Zen was uh, everywhere for like a solid year when that's wow. like yeah. could you not could you tell at the time like I remember that being really into Nirvana and then like a band like Bush came along or and you could tell the you know that you just have this innate no knowledge that one was better than the other. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, like I mean, yeah. similarly to bring it back to the Beatles, I can't believe there's ever been a discussion of like whether they or the Stones are better. I, I have right. tolerance for yeah. the Stones, yeah, really. Um, yeah. And that's just me. I know they they have a few good songs, but overall, like I just I, Mick Jagger's personality just makes me bristle. So, so right, it's, yeah. it's, it's like you know the, the Bono kind of character. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I can't Jim imagine Morrison. you doing the kind of. Uh, Bono style or Mick Jagger <clears throat> style performance when he played. <laughs> yeah, just the, strutting. Strut yeah, when, you ever when, strutted? When ego, ego outpaces your, <clears throat> maybe it doesn't outpace your talent necessarily, but just outpaces uh, propriety. Right. Yeah. <laughs> similarly, I, I like I feel bad for the rest of the band too in those cases, and then like with uh, with Zeppelin, you know, the mm -hmm. eagle screams and like the orgasm screams that he does all over their music, yeah. where it otherwise yeah. be like pretty listenable, but. Mm. <laughs> it's a really strange one the Beatles and the Stones because I've never really it seems like apart from the fact that they started at the same time and they're all male and they're working class there really isn't that much comparison like, I think surely sort of the Kinks and the Beatles would be a better mm. comparison or you know there, there must be like countless other bands like they're so like what they stand for to me is so different Mm. I think the zombies like, would be a good comparison too. Oh yeah, Odyssey mm. and Oracle is a really, really solid record. Yeah, but I suppose I, I mean I think this is in Dreaming the Beatles again, which is a book we've been talking about. But like, mm -hmm. um, if you think that the Stones were kind of recreating 
those blues records, the, the really big influence on the Beatles, particularly the early stuff, was girl groups. Slightly yeah. different kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that pure pop, that kind of girl group thing is something you really hear in the Beatles. Early yeah, especially sure. Lennon and the Ronettes. And yeah, yeah. Those hand claps and the call and response. And yeah, exactly. All of that stuff yeah. Is... yeah, I was going to mention earlier, uh, talking about my folks, that um, even though my mom did enjoy the, like really Beatles stuff. She was very much a Motown girl. Like she grew up in right. Detroit in Redford, the oh, suburb wow. of Detroit specifically. Yeah. You know, she told me about, uh, sitting on her roof and reading a book after school every day. And there was a point, I think it's, I think it was in 67 when the Detroit riots happened. She was like a senior in high school and she just began to see these plumes of smoke wow. coming up from wow. the city in the distance mm-hmm. and not knowing what was going on. So it was a pretty dramatic time to be around mm-hmm. all that, but also like culturally, you know, I, th- I assume some of the records, like 45s she had back in those days, would be worth uh, a mint at this point if she still mm-hmm. had them. Yeah, um, right. yeah, a lot of good stuff. I know she loved the Marvelettes and, uh, gosh, who else? A few other Ronettes and uh, Screams yeah. and, you know, the, the heavy hitters for sure. And I, I love, I, I tend to like that stuff. Like, when I go back to listen to music of that era, it tends to be more on the girl group end of things. Right. I also, I really love the mm-hmm. Trogs. Oh, yeah, yeah. Probably yeah, my yeah. favorite, like, like, mid to late 60s band right. overall. The Trogs, mm-hmm. wow. The, have you heard the Trogs tapes? You know, the, uh, Actually, I haven't, no. There's a great recording of them trying to re- record a song and getting very frustrated with each other. It's kind of was said to be a big influence on kind of Spinal Tap kind of stuff. It's oh, nice. Funny. I'll have to check that out. Whether you well, think like so or not, that is a number fucking one, and if, if that bastard don't go, then you I'll, I'll fucking retire. I love those those hidden recordings. There's yeah. the one of, of uh, Buddy Rich like yelling at his his bus full of bandmates about just being absolute shit. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think that that actually influenced uh, like one of the rants that George Costanza had on Seinfeld at one. Oh, point. really? <laughs> like tears into somebody. I think he he says like, "I'll take you outside and show you what it's like," and that's what <laughs> Buddy Rich said in that tape. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's anyway. Great. Well, I just appreciate you know, being taught you are. I try to talk to you like a human being, and you talk you back all the time. Now keep your fucking mouth shut, or I'll show you what it's like. That's all. And if I have to tell you again, we're going to take it outside, and I'm going to show you what it's like. You understand me? <laughs> I'm a big from that era. I love all the Goffin King stuff, though. I mean, that that is just. I think that's just genius songwriting. You know, like. Mm. One Fine Day and songs like that and, and mm. to be able to achieve so much with essentially the same chord progression over and over again <laughs> Yeah, you know, yeah. The... I think that, that was sort of their early ambition in the Beatles was to be a sort of before they wanted to be a, a massive rock band or whatever they they were more interested in being a songwriting partnership mm. in that vein yeah, and yeah. they really wanted like Lennon McCartney to be the dynasty rather than mm. the Beatles yeah. which is, is um, you know Considering how fractious that relationship yeah, became, yeah. it's like strange to remember that that's the kind of origins. And well, yeah, and still, uh, the up until quite late in the Beatles, they were still sending songs to other people. Like, didn't Paul McCartney send "Long and Winding Road" to Cilla Black? So yeah, he wrote a couple of songs for Cilla Black, yeah. didn't he? You probably don't know who Cilla um, Black is, Tom, and it's kind of hard to explain. I'm afraid I don't know. <laughs> yeah. She's a, a very famous uh, national treasure who presented a sort of prime time dating show in the 90s but yeah. before that she was uh, it was uh, like pre-tinder blue eyed soul yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a televised tinder yeah. with uh, 
Yeah, but she was a kind of sort of like blue-eyed soul um, Liverpudlian who used to hang around with the Beatles. She, yeah, the kind she had of, a great voice, no, no doubt. Yeah, in a, not a million miles away from a dusty Springfield kind of vein. Oh, nice. But yeah, like George, George wrote because he wrote quite a lot of stuff for um, other bands as well. Right. And there's quite. A, have you heard his version, um, the Ronettes version of "Try Some, Buy Some"? It's called of mm. uh, "Living in the Material World." Uh, yes, yeah. Um, a good little full circle one as well. Oh yeah, I was just going to go back to the ambient thing a bit because one thing I said in that John Ronson thing was this idea of for for me what I love about ambient and it took me a while to get into it because I think I went through a phase at university of kind of probably saying I liked ambient music to sort of sound clever and put (laughs) putting (laughs) DJing in the bar and playing some Brian Eno or something just to be pretentious but then I think I've just really I mean it's probably helped by listening to your stuff is, is that has made me really get into it is I find it can just unlock a mood and it can be very very meditative and it can change your time sense of time and it can take you on a journey and um you know that's what I how I've really got into ambient music in recent years and um yeah, I was talking in the last podcast with the John Ronson one about this idea that Strawberry Fields is so brilliant at evoking this mood that it almost has that similar effect of ambient music, I think, where it kind of is, creates this atmosphere so beautifully. You know, do, do, you, do you find that you have that response to kind of non-ambient music? Do you, does that make sense to you? You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I do. I, I <laughs> think there was a point in my adulthood where I realized that the things that initially drew me to certain types of music or like certain songs were much more textural than mm. anything else like uh i think my first favorite song was probably cannonball by the breeders and that's just right. like such an unusually conceived and executed song and like yeah. that whole record um last splash yeah. is kind of um almost like a series of sketches like very yeah. few things in there seem completely fleshed out but it's you know you just feel like there's such electric energy and they just like have to get these things out there and that's something yeah, i really right. loved and the guitar tones on there and just like the breathiness of Kim Deal's voice is yeah, yeah, something that yeah. I will forever love. I still still adore that record. It's kind yeah. of like a, I think there are certain voices like hers and probably Trish Keenan from Broadcast I can right, just yeah. listen to on any given day because there's such a richness and uh, I guess when I sing there's some of that breathiness behind it too uh, mm. that's, that some people have and uh, my friend Raphael who, uh, with whom I have a band called Orcas mm, records yeah. my voice like way more cleanly cleanly than I do yeah, and he, he yeah. refers to that as the devil hiss because it's just it sounds like vaguely just gently demonic coming out <laughs> um, but I also you know I, I the only reason I started singing at all was because I had you know some vocal ideas that I mumbled into like a radio shack five dollar microphone mm-hmm. on something I recorded when I was like 16 and I fancied myself fancied but fancied myself a young budding poet and <laughs> was still too embarrassed to like show it to anybody nor have anybody else sing it so I was like I right. guess I just have to sing it to myself and then yeah, completely that's obfuscate the, it that's the um, great thing about Trish Keenan from Broadcast is she's got that almost singing in your ear quality as well mm. and again she's got that it's got that incredible nostalgic quality again I think oh, yeah. you know they, they like their production was a, a major influence on me too I will say for right. sure especially from the haha sound record that just like yeah. at once sounds very raw but also incredibly detailed and yeah um, the know, album so i love rich. is um the, the last one the the tender buttons no the the investigate witch cults of the radio oh right yeah i think it's such an incredible album and mm. it's i mean it is um 
I mean, it's quite Revolution Number no. Niney, really, because it's mm-hmm. a collage and it's um, it's got you've got these weird voices just keep that keep coming back, and then you've got these. I suppose yeah, White Albumy really because it's got you've got these snippets of these beautiful songs that like kind of last for just a couple of minutes and then they kind mm-hmm. of fade out and other things come in and then it's incredibly textural and very 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 unnerving as well. <laughs> Do you know the song, the se- the seancing song on that album? I uh, can't think of it specifically. I, it's I've the one, heard it lots of times, but I don't know the titles. In and out. Yeah, it's the, it's the one where it's kind of interrupted by this really horrifically loud phone oh, yeah. telephone ringing. It makes one person ready It's very white albumy, actually. This is what mm. I was gonna. I was gonna read this bit from Revolution in the Head a while ago, um, because you know I kept saying in one of the podcasts that it's like, like a kind of haunted house. Yes, they, yeah. I thought that was a great description. Yeah, this is this is so this is Revolution in the the Head. Um, so before the Leicester Group family issued their debut LP, Music in a Doll's House, in August 1968, the Beatles had been planning to call their work a Doll's House supposedly after Ibsen. The Clash was unfortunate since this was an apt title for this musical attic. Musical attic's a great phrase. (laughs) Of odds and ends, some charming, others sinister, many tinged with childhood memories, all absorbed in the interior worlds of their authors. There is a secret unease in this music, betraying the turmoil beneath the group's business-as-usual facade. Shadows lengthen over the album as it progresses the slow afternoon of the Beatles' career. Uh, that's a, isn't that a great way of describing mm. the White Album? Yeah, perfect. <laughs> and the, and the, uh, the broadcast album. Yeah, I agree. Well. And I, I also like, I firmly disagree with the opinion, I can't remember who said the other day, that, or on the you know, recent episode, that uh, White Album should only be one LP. <laughs> that's um, that was Jack's. <laughs> that's probably me. Yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I understand where you're coming from with that, but I, like, yeah. that was such a, uh, an important thing for me to realize is that you can just, you know, an album doesn't have to be one specific thing. It doesn't mm. have to be 12 songs, 40 minutes. Yeah. Um, you can throw in all kinds of ideas and there's just yeah. such a range of things. Like, kind of like I said, not maybe not going through a forest, but going through a house is good. Yeah, like, yeah. Good comparison for mm. that where you encounter, you know, if you're listening to it for the first time, you just don't know what's around the next corner. Yeah, but, I mean, that, that was, yeah, my controversial Beatles opinion. <laughs> uh, with, with a bit of my tongue in my cheek there. Mm. But then, actually, someone the other day has said that the first time I've ever heard anyone say it, um, a friend of mine, Will, said that his favourite Beatles record is the US version of Magical Mystery Tour. Okay, yeah. Because it's with like with all the singles put yeah. back in, so it's got, you know, Penny Lane and um, Strawberry Fields and Hello Goodbye. And yeah. Actually, if you look at it, it's probably the biggest run of, like, yes, unadulterated uh, hits. Yeah, we got that of, on CD, that version. It's yeah. got All You Need Is Love on it as well, and... Um, yeah, it's pretty. Yeah, it's pretty but solid. <laughs> as an album, it just doesn't work, right? Because yeah. it's just a collection of singles. Yeah, and I think you know, not to sort of retract my controversial Beatles opinion, but it's, yeah, the, I mean, the album, the White Album, would not work if it was just my twelve favorite yeah. tracks. You know, <laughs> I'm you glad do we've converted. You need all of that. Well, stuff. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, with Let It Be, they tried to do that again, didn't they? With the kind of framing things, little snippets between songs and stuff. But I don't think it's as effective as the White Album. Some of the White mm. Album stuff is so funny, isn't it? Like Lennon going, "Hey up!" And <laughs> yeah, 
and there's that great blisters on my fingers. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> blisters on my fingers. And the the really funny bit is that incredibly sped up bit of Spanish guitar. When I first heard that, I laughed out loud, you know, because mm. it's it's kind That's of. That's actually um, played on the Mellotron. Is it? Yeah, it's not a real guitar. Fuck me. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> when they remixed it. When Giles Martin remixed it, um, there was no way to like clean that sound up because yeah. it, it is what it is, you know, and it's on those tapes. So mm. it's the only bit of new recorded music. So they they tracked down the original Mellotron that Paul still has, and one of his engineers played it identically, note for note. Really? Yeah. That's fascinating. So it's not the same. It's not the same bit of tape. That's weird. That's yeah. too much. I think that's a bridge. Yeah, to, yeah. yeah. That's a bridge I think you might be fight. right. Yeah. I mean, they I think yeah. they they fought for some of their effects for sure. I mean, fam- the, all the famous stuff on uh, Tomorrow Never Knows is is, uh, is one thing, but yeah. Um, mm. Going yeah. back to that sort of, um, sorry, going back to that kind of collage-y, um thing. Have you ever heard Paul McCartney's late nineties, early two thousands, like? attempt at sort of ambient collage it's called um liverpool sound collage i haven't but that sounds uh, it's, like it's it could be delightful or bits of it are delightful okay. bits of it are let's say undelightful <laughs> um um and, and he's sort of flirting with um kind of like uh trip poppy elements at the same right. time so it's got these always like, bad to flirt almost, with trip pop i think yeah, so it's got these kind of almost DJ shadowy kind of drum loops mm. in it. What? But at the same time, there is... Um, I think it must have been 2000. It sounds very 2000. Mm. But there's lots of sort of nostalgic clippings from, like, Liverpool's soundscapes from his childhood and, mm. like, sort of synthy pad stuff. So really, it's, it's really interesting, actually. Yeah. And, yeah. and another great example of Paul just, like, still trying new stuff all yeah. the time yeah, it's, it's admirable even if it's not successful you know, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's A for effort exactly don't know do we know I think we know I'll just go and chinga chinga ching boom 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 the bit that John finally got just after that this boy that boy this boy this boy this boy you mentioned Tomorrow Never Knows and I'd love to talk more about Boards of Canada because I think that's a we talked about this in a previous episode, but the seagull sound on that and is oh, yeah. very like the Boards of Canada song um, from the Peel session. And, uh, Happy cycling, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so Boards of Canada, uh, you know, they've got a song called Nothing Is Real as well. And mm-hmm. they, uh, Do you think they're big fans? And do you, what's your kind of, how do you feel about the way they kind of process the past through their music, if, if that makes sense? And do you, do you hear the Beatles in their music? I feel like I need to prepare for this question because I, I definitely have a lot to say about it. Um, <laughs> Please do. Yeah, they, they've been time. well. They've been my probably my favorite band, or you know, it's tough to say favorite band, but yeah. uh, I generally they're my go-to if somebody asks like, "Oh, what's your favorite?" Band? You're right. I've right. said that since I was about 14, and I first picked up one of their records, um, which I, you know, I got into Warp Records after seeing the Aphex Twin "Come to Daddy" video and being scared out of my mind by it. Yeah, yeah. But then being intrigued enough to like listen to the CD at the you know I used to have listening stations at the record store. Right. Yeah. 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 Listen to the new thing and the a couple of the other tracks on, on that "Come to Daddy" record just kind of blew my mind standing there in the store at, at that age. Uh, and I, I maybe it was the first time I realized you can make really interesting 
com- compelling um, narrative music without a guitar. Yeah, it's, it's like it's similar for me. I think, stupid, um, it's a pretty big deal. I heard Richard the Richard D James album mm-hmm. um, on the radio, and yeah, I just thought, wow, this is beautiful. And I remember similarly, it was the, I think it was the first album CD I bought that wasn't a guitar album. It was the mm-hmm. Richard D James album, and I still love that. Uh, yeah, it's incredibly beautiful, and I think from there I got into the you know other Warp Records stuff. But yeah, um, yeah, carry on. So that your, your your Warp journey was <laughs> uh, well specifically with Boards Canada. I, I think there is definitely an influence that the Nothing Is Real, the nod of that song title occurred to me too, mm-hmm. um, and that's probably my favorite song in that record. Um, yeah, as well. But um, you know, famously, their stuff is very cryptic. They don't mm. say much. I think they've only done like one or maybe two full-length interviews um ever and the last one was in like 2005 i want to say yeah might have been later than that i'm not sure um but anyway i kind of that's one thing i appreciate about them you're talking about people who kind of like step back from their work Mm. um out of either respect for the audience or just their need for space i assume they've probably done well enough that they don't ever have to release an album again um i I, for one hope they do but yeah (laughs) um that yeah the depths of the nostalgia in there is something that really immediately attracted me to them yeah um at that age because i you know grew up uh, in the late 80s early 90s watching film board of canada things growing up yeah. in michigan like it's right very close to the canadian border and we got cbc in our house um and i think there was like at least a couple times a week there was an hour showcase of those old 70s um either nature videos or yeah. uh, kind of bizarro cartoons and, yeah. and a lot of claymation stuff that was kind of mystifying to me. Um, <laughs> and again, something where you never knew what, what you're going to get next. And it was kind of yeah, just yeah. very, very interesting and had that patina of film grain and uh, audio hiss on it. And yeah. That's something that's pretty deeply embedded in my, in my mind. Yeah. Um, so when I heard somebody incorporating that as they do into their work with the kind of soft synth pads, minor key mm-hmm. melodies, throw in some just like really uh bass uh bass heavy beats and very like again like i was saying with with percussion elements um i feel like they throw in a lot of crunching like very organic sounds where you normally hear a snare drum i feel like it's something completely different that they Mm. throw in there and their their rhythm production style is uh is deceptively complex on a lot of things i remember Mm. putting on music has the rich children um in the car one time on a, on a freeway and the road noise kind of overtook the subtlety of the melodies but you could still hear the, the beats and rhythmic stuff on top right, of it yeah, it's like yeah. kind of almost like an unintentional remix situation where right? yeah. I focusing on something I hadn't really yeah. paid as much attention to in the past yeah, yeah. Um, and I think they're probably the reason that I felt comfortable throwing in uh, a lot of a lot of like background spoken word stuff in my mm-hmm. music because you'll hear voices and backwards things yeah. going throughout a lot of their songs. Geo, Geogaddy is, is, I think, probably their most uh, scrutinized record. I used to belong to a message board called We Are The Music Makers when I was a teenager. We are the music makers, and we are the dreamers of the dreams. It was mostly focused on the FX Twin and, and Square Pusher and what's Yeah, and so it was people working out the kind of clues and the songs and, you know. Mm. Yeah, I also had probably my first significant uh, mushroom experience listening to Geogatti like the month after it came right. out which was yeah. very important to I think a reorganization of my brain at that age right, that, yeah. that has served me well since wow. um, mm. and yeah the fact that there's just they, they do nostalgia really well like there's some other artists I don't want to like 
insult anybody by naming them, but there are some, some people who, who incorporate like very consciously nostalgic things into their music or kind of mm. go for that same vibe, uh, but are not successful in the same way. Yeah. There's, no, there's, not, there's something kind of like vaguely threatening about the way Boys of Canada does, yeah. does, does their it's, nostalgia. It's, it's, like, it's like acknowledging it's, both the sweetness, but also, you know, when you think about the 70s, you can't... Uh, avoid thinking about some pretty horrific things that happened yeah. during that decade too. So that's yeah, always yeah. kind of lingering in the background. Yeah, that's it. That's yeah. brilliant. What a great way of putting it. The song mm. I love, Geoget. I love Alpha and Omega on that song on that album. It's just amazing. I can just I could just listen to it on a loop. You know, I just I just find it so interesting. And that's the one that's yeah. a, little, a little bit uh, faster tempo and has the kind of tablas on it. I think. Yeah, it's the kind of diddle 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 just humming boards of kind of stuff. Oh yeah, well we could ask you our, our stock question, which is, uh, do you have a controversial Beatles opinion? Hmm. Uh, I thought about that because I realized you were asking other guests that. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It might, it might be something that I kind of uh, alluded to earlier, which is that I, I feel like most, or at least many of their early songs were. Done better as covers than right. by the band yeah. themselves. Yeah, that's true. I don't know if that's yeah. exactly controversial, but I, I feel like that stuff verges so closely into like German schlager, you know, that, that yeah, genre yeah, of just yeah. like way too self-consciously sweet and kind of like so it's almost like you know Lou Reed from Velvet Underground started out writing songs for Pickwick. He was basically just like a hired songwriter, yeah, right? Like, yeah. All right. Here's my list of words that I have to throw into this song. Yeah. Here's yeah. you know 110 BPM drum beat. I'll compose yeah. a very basic three chord structure over yeah, it yeah. and have done with it. Yeah. It feels that way to me. It doesn't feel like they really opened up until their accidental LSD trip. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> in a way. So what's the point that you sort of jump on board in the chronology of it? Uh, well, it's funny because even like I said, I'm not as a super fan. I'm very I'm very familiar with certain of their works and almost not at all familiar with other ones. I've like I've, I don't think I've ever heard. Uh, Magical Mystery Tour front to back because I hate mm-hmm. the cover of that album. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. it's stupid That's thing to judge, obviously, no, but right. it just like no, makes true. me want to puke. Yeah. <laughs> my, my, what do you think? My friend Drew got in touch with me because say he'd been enjoying the podcast. And Drew's controversial opinion was that he doesn't like anything they did after Revolver. That's <laughs> <laughs> one of the stupidest things I've ever heard. No, just <laughs> but he said his favorite Revolver is his favorite album cover. So what? Yeah, I, I agree with Magical Mystery Tour. But it's got the it's it's it the it's got the Beatles written in stars yeah. of them. Yeah, it's, it's pretty it's crap. quite illegible. And, and the, the, it's like mostly like, animated with these kind of goofy fonts, but then it's the picture of the four of them in the I guess walrus yeah, costumes. It's horrendous. Yeah. It looks yeah. like one of those sort of Japanese imports you would find <laughs> yeah. in TV in the nineties. But actually. Uh, could, to kind of tie this back into the Boards of Canada Beatles discussion, yeah. uh, I realized I was going to mention, I, I know that um, one thing they divulged is that uh, Incredible String Band were one of their biggest influences. Right, yeah. Oh, right. Um, yeah, that makes and, sense. And some people have made some parallels between the cover of Music Has the Rich Children and The Hangman's Beautiful Daughter, the kind of right. assemblage of, of people. Mm-hmm. And That's there's some like There's some linguistic overlaps with song titles and a lot of that mm-hmm. kind of just like... Uh, we're out in the fens doing our own thing. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, lo- I loved Incredible String Band. I mean, and they were, mm. what was great about Incredible String Band? There's so much stuff they did just sort of by chance, didn't they? Mm. Um, you know, wasn't there a song which was they pulled, I can't remember the name of it, well, it's kind of unpronounceable, it's a bit of a word salad, S pants situation. <laughs> but there's a song where the, where the title of it is 
they grabbed Scrabble letters out of the bag and created the title like that, didn't they? But I, I, I believe you, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but the amazing thing, the incredible string, it feels like he's channeling all this stuff. Like, where's this coming from? You know, mm-hmm. these incredible lyrics and so bizarre. And they were, they were kind of a. The Beatles were very much paying attention to what the Incredible String Band mm, were doing yeah, at the definitely. time, I think. You know. cards revolve, ever-changing Seeded elsewhere Planted in the garden fair trees yeah, Actually, uh, to kind of piggyback on that, I read a book earlier this year called um, The Lark Ascending. Oh, right, yeah, I really want to read that, yeah. Somebody King, I want to say. Richard King is the author. Richard King, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it was, yeah, it was really fascinating as someone who didn't really know much about any early 20th century like British music. You know, I know mm-hmm. plenty about America having grown up here. Yeah. But um, it kind of traces a path, and it has mostly to do with like how rural England has influenced um, you know, certain movements, and it had a lot to do with um, assemblages of, of protesters in the 80s. And, right. Uh, the musical movements that came out of that. There's almost, as far as I can remember, I don't think there's any mention of the Beatles in there. Maybe just yeah. like a tiny, <laughs> tiny footnote here. There, yeah, yeah. It was yeah. Um, pretty interesting, like alternative perspective on the history yeah, yeah. of music. So it sort century. of starts really, with really Vaughan good. Williams and goes throughout the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they actually they get into really they get into Boards of Canada at the end, or Richard mm-hmm. King does, uh, yeah, yeah. and talking about the way that the, the pastoral has affected like a more modern take on uh, where things are going. Mm. Yeah. The Beatles never really had that phase, but I suppose the Kinks probably. I mean, Village Green Preservation Society's there, mm. the kind of you know rural concept album. Mm. But I suppose where then, yeah, Paul's solo stuff is more, you know, songs like uh, like oh, for sure. um, off Ram, especially mm. yeah, Life in the Country and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. Electric Eden, they, mm. he'd go. It's, it sounds like it's quite similar territory, where he kind of begins with the Vaughan Williams and collecting folk songs and then goes through the 60s incredible string band Beatles and and then goes right up to the kind of Boards of Canada broadcast connection and the kind of slightly hauntology kind of approach of mm. thinking about the way place influences music and things like that. I'll have to uh, add that to my list. The next yeah, book I, I recently got uh, as a gift for my birthday is M Train by Patti Smith which is like, Oh cool. Called. Yeah, it's about her adventures on the subway out to the Rockaway, which is uh, New York's only beach, essentially. Yes, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, yeah, I've been riding my bike out there a lot since. So oh, nice. Yeah. yeah, that's cool. Awesome. awesome. <laughs> so there we go. That was a fantastic episode. Really enjoyed that one. Thank you very much, Benoit, for coming on. Yeah, that was great. I I, I came across this brilliant quote from William Bozinski today, another brilliant ambient musician. I suppose you could call him an ambient musician, experimental tape artist, I guess. Mm -hmm. Where he said, this was in this month's Wire magazine, the bubble of eternity, I call it. If this short loop loops in such a way that you can't really discern its beginning or end, then all of a sudden it's expandable. It's like going through a wormhole. I thought that was brilliant because we were talking a lot about the kind of how magical and transformative listening to kind of all kinds of music, particularly stuff with very nostalgic associations is mm. in this podcast. So I thought that was a good quote, the idea of music being a wormhole. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Sorry, um, I got I very serious and, there, not I? No, no, I, I went back and listened to a lot of... It's interesting what he said about um, 
sort of deliberate nostalgia or maybe sort of crowbarred in nostalgia. Mm. Um, and uh, do you, I mean, he was being nice and diplomatic there, but do yeah. you have any idea who he might have been talking about? I don't know, but I, I wonder if it's to do with kind of, it's a bit of a trope to put like vinyl noise on a record. Right, yeah. I can't think true. of anyone who's done that, but I can imagine that's a very obvious kind of key yeah, signifier yeah. of, you're trying to sound like something from the past, but you know, I actually can't think of anyone who does that. <laughs> but <laughs> but sure I mean, there seems just... like there's a lot of tape noisy stuff around now. Like, I, I kind of like, I was listening to Ariana Grande the other day, and there's some kind of like really nice tape compression on that. It sounds oh, really? like tape compression and some, mm. some of those tracks. So, yeah, I mean, that kind of sound is kind of very pervasive now. Yeah. So there we have it. Season one done and dusted. Um, thank you so much to everyone who's downloaded an episode. And if you've downloaded all of them, then, you know, amazing. Thanks for coming with us on this this journey. It's been, seems like, years since we came up yeah. with our first chat back in the, you know, lockdown one. Hmm. And uh, it's been it's been really, really fun. And, um, you know, we've chatted so many amazing people. I'm pretty thrilled with the um, amount of like incredible voices that we've managed to get. And uh, yeah, it's been a blast. So thank you so much. And thank you, Robin, for doing it. No, yeah, thank you, Jack. It's been tremendous, actually, hasn't it? It's been, it's kind of started as a bit of a, a bit of fun. And then it kind of, it sort of seemed to open up um, this kind of real goldmine of people's memories and things. And so it's kind of gone in quite an unexpected direction, I think, you know. Yeah, and it's been so nice for people to sort of share their personal stories and stuff. But mm. that's probably the most enjoyable part of it for me. So, um, yeah, we're going to have a, a little break from the Beatles so we yes. don't get completely sick of them. <laughs> um, because, but, you know, too much of a good thing and all that. Yeah. Um, but we'll be back hopefully, you know, next year sometime. We've got, you know, some really great names that we want to get. So do keep sending in your stuff. If you want to get uh, in contact with us, you can email me, jack at homespunsounds.com or go to personalbeatles.com forward slash contact. Um, yeah, and let us know some of your personal Beatles. If there's anyone you would love to get on the show, then we'd love to hear. We can't promise anything. Um, you know, feel free not to suggest yourself. Um, yeah. But if you must, actually, shout out to uh, um, one of our sort of more persistent fans, Hannah, who's uh, started a Twitter campaign to get herself on the show. Um, best of luck. Um, it's really, it, it is, uh, you know, who knows? Keep keep going. You never know what might happen. <laughs> And uh, a special thank you to everyone who has uh, donated to us. So when we started, we were planning on doing six episodes of this and your very generous contributions have, mean, have meant that we've been able to go on for a sort of 16, 17 episodes, which is pretty amazing um, because it is quite a costly endeavour. And that is, yeah, we're incredibly grateful. And if you have enjoyed this series and you want to help us come back for a second series, your shits, then uh, <laughs> you can go to personalbeatles.com forward slash donate. So... With um with a bit of luck, we'll see you next year, post McCartney three, hopefully post COVID, yes. be good to do some kind of uh, some podcast Don's Le Pub, um, yeah, you know, in person. And yeah, we'll see you in twenty twenty one. Thanks so much for listening. Your own personal Beatles is presented by Jack Pelling and Robin Allender. The podcast artwork is done by Morgan Ritchie. It's produced by me, Jack Pelling, and is a Homespun Sounds production.